You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Hello, your papers say Acts 24, but the reading this evening comes from Acts 25, verses 13 through 27. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is the word of the Lord. pray that what we do not know, you would now teach us. We pray that what we do not have, you would give us. And what we are not, God, we pray that you would make us. For the sake of Christ our King, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see you all this evening. A fuller room. Things are already always kind of doldrummy in the middle of the summer, but things are picking back up as we approach the fall. It's good to see you all this evening. There's plenty of you I haven't met. So my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I would love to get to chat with you and just hear how you came to Albuquerque or came to Christchurch uh, this evening, uh, just to get to know you, maybe schedule a coffee or a lunch or something in the next few weeks. But what you just heard Taylor read from Acts 25 means that we are on the home stretch. 
Uh, we started the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of Jesus by His Spirit through His Church, whatever you want to call this here book. We started this book uh, way back in the first week of September of last year, uh, and now we have four weeks remaining. Uh, I have been so challenged and grown in so many ways in my belief and in my trust in the reign and rule of the risen Lord Jesus in my life and beyond uh, in this book, but we're not done yet. Uh, we'll get through chapter 25 tonight, which sets the stage for a huge encounter next week in chapter 26, followed by a shipwreck on the way to Rome in 27, and then finally Rome in 28 uh, in three more weeks. But just a heads up, though, where we're going to head in the fall. Uh, we'll keep our custom of spending a few weeks in the Psalms uh, in between books, and then beginning in September, we're going to start a new sermon series in the book of Proverbs. Maybe you've never uh, experienced or sat through or learned from a sermon series in Proverbs. It's kind of weird. It'll be a little different. We'll likely preach through the first nine chapters, uh, just like we'd preach through any book, uh, just moving through it slowly. But then in chapters 10 through 31, it'll be the most like a topical sermon series that you'll ever encounter here. Uh, we'll take uh, random proverbs uh, of different themes and deal with them thematically. Themes like vocation and decision-making and money and friendship and parenting, just to name a few. Uh, we need wisdom so badly now in our culture, so I'm hopeful that God will make us and help us become a wiser church in thinking through some of these things. But it's not September yet. Uh, I can just hear, like, Paul back in the back saying, I'm not dead yet! I feel happy! Uh, so uh, we're going to think through this chapter tonight with Paul. That was a Monty Python reference for, like, half the room that was like, who is this guy? But uh, this chapter, now we're going to think through it in four parts. Four parts as Paul is brought before kings. Really two parts with two sub subsections. That of accused and vindicated, and then accused and vindicated in both of these scenes that Paul is dragged before kings. So, first of all, accused. While Paul is not dead, he is still in chains. As Kyle mentioned last week, and thank you, brother. I don't, Kyle, I don't even know where you are, but thank you wherever you are for preaching last week. I was so served and fed by you, brother, wherever you are. Yes, there he is. Thank you, brother. Uh, as Kyle mentioned last week, uh, Luke tells us here at the end of chapter 24 that Paul has been sitting in Caesarea for now two years. It's just like a verse goes by, and like you read it in three seconds, but it's two years of Paul's life sitting in chains. I don't know what he's doing, like marking the wall each day, pushing, doing push-ups and sit-ups, playing basketball in the yard, helping guys get their GED, helping the uh, warden do his taxes. Uh, wrong movie. Uh, but in chapter 24, Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, he keeps Paul alive, and he keeps him safe from the Jewish leadership who wanted him dead. But he was holding out hope for something that never came. He was holding out hope that Paul was just going to pay him off, that he was going to bribe his way out of prison. And so Felix, whose name literally means happy, like the Spanish word feliz, uh, Felix, Mr. Happy, is replaced by Festus, whose name literally means joyous or like festival. I don't know why these Romans uh, get the, like the reputation that they're always so serious when they keep naming their kids like disco balls should be like following them around for their whole lives or something. But uh, even more than that, we read at the end of chapter 24 that his name isn't just Festus, but it's Porcius Festus. Porcius, Porcius, which literally means pork. His name is Mr. Pork Party. 
Uh, so Mr. Happy is replaced by Mr. Pork Party, but he doesn't start the party. The disco ball doesn't drop. He has inherited a problem. And the problem is this prisoner that is left to him. The prisoner Paul, whom the people that Festus now governs, hate. The Jewish leaders may be trying to take advantage of this new leader. They ask that Paul be finally brought back to Jerusalem for another religious trial, even though Luke tells us that this is just another ruse so that they can ambush and kill Paul. And so Festus, uh, to summarize the first uh, four verses or so of chapter 25, he says like, hey, I'm, I'm going to Caesarea myself. Why don't you guys come with me where Paul is, and then we can all try him together and hear directly from him there. And so the next two chapters then are in Caesarea, this coming trial, another trial, but this time with new judges and new juries. And like Kyle said last week, I too, just like Kyle, when he opened chapter 24 last week, I opened chapter 25 on Monday of this week and thought, like, I have preached this sermon. We have done this so many times in the book of Acts. I momentarily on Monday morning decided that we were just going to preach all of chapter 25 and 26 because there just wasn't going to be enough to say. But there is plenty. Uh, But why such detail? Why such repetition? Why another trial through such detail that Luke gives us? Well, certainly to show Paul as a model of conviction and courage of a man who is really, not just spiritually, but like literally now united to the life of Christ, that Jesus's people live into the life and death of Jesus. And we should expect his and our stories in some way to uh, look like, very much look like the life of Jesus. But remember what we said way back in September in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Acts 1-1, Luke says that he has compiled all of this, these 28 chapters of this story, for someone named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus could just be like any generic Christian that Paul has written this to. Theophilus just means a lover of God. So to anybody who loves God out there, I have written this. But more likely, this is Theophilus, a rich benefactor who would commission and pay for all of these very expensive scrolls and the research and the writing. And so Theophilus very likely could be a wealthy Roman, and Luke wants to get or go to great pains to follow Paul's entire legal struggle up until the point that he arrives at Rome. Maybe Theophilus is a lawyer, and Luke has done the investigative legwork for him, like the legal discovery process that could later be brought before the courts that Paul is going to walk into in Rome. He wants to make sure everything is ordered and detailed. So Festus And the Jewish leadership, they go to Caesarea and they bring Paul in for a new trial. Festus wants to hear from Paul himself and get to the bottom of it. And the Jews bring, verse 7, many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Maybe this time uh, they are still bringing many of the serious charges they have brought before, like defiling the temple, like undermining Moses or something, but perhaps... They're trying to bring things that will actually stick with the Romans this time as well. Maybe like trying to pin Al Capone with tax evasion or something. They're like accusing him of unpaid parking tickets and shoplifting to go along with defiling the temple. Just anything that will stick. But just like their original accusations, nothing is sticking. He is accused, but now second, he is vindicated. In chapter 25, verse 8, Paul says this. He says, 
he argued in his defense. He says, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape to seek death or seek to escape death. And we'll stop there for just a second. Again, as we've thought through many or many times in the past couple of weeks, Paul has and is living his life before God. He is in the wide open. He's not breaking any laws, religious Jewish laws, or civil Roman laws. He is living his life, again, not sinlessly, but before the face of God. A phrase that throughout the centuries has been used, a Latin phrase of quorum Deo. He is living his life completely in the open before God, before the face of God. That we are not just Christians on Sundays. That we are not just Christians before a meal with a prayer, but that every second of every moment of every day of every year of our life is before the face of God, whether you are a Christian or not. He sees all and knows all, which is a terrifying reality. It's a terrifying reality if you are banking on your own record of right and wrong. When Paul himself was persecuting the church by doing what he thought God wanted when he was on the other side of this trial, when he was on the persecuting side. He thought what he was doing was right. We can often be deluded into thinking what we're doing is right. Paul was keeping what he thought was an impeccable spiritual resume until he soon realized that all of it was just a mess. It was of no use. That God had seen and had, want, and had found Paul's life wanting. A few years ago, a British pastor, Sam Alberry, posted an image from his hotel desk, or his hotel room desk. Uh, on it, you, put, you find those uh, hangers that you put on the outside of your door for, to communicate to the maid service, and he took a picture of e either side of this door hanger. And above the image, he said, there are only two responses to the offer Christ gives us of himself. It really boils down to how you see yourself and then the images. One was red, and it said, I'm clean enough, do not disturb. But the other side was green and said, I'm a right mess, come on in. This was to communicate to the maid service whether or not they were to enter the room and clean it. Again, there are only two responses to the offer Christ gives us of himself. It really boils down to how you see yourself. I'm clean enough, do not disturb, or I'm a right mess. Come on in. And so once Paul came to know the love of Christ, the righteousness of God through Christ for him, the unrighteous, well, now he's been set, been set free. Now his conscience has been set free. His life now for Jesus to live entirely for him, not sinlessly, but progressively to sin less in confident, clean, clear conscience. Now, whether you realize it or not, we are all right messes. We need the love of Christ to transform us from the inside out. Indeed, as Paul would write, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, 
my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. This is why he has faith, that he may know him and the power of his resurrection. He may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that may, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul's life was now completely and utterly about. Anything that was not about helping him to know Christ, gone. I consider it all lost. Get it out of here. Sure, there are many things that we can do and still enjoy and watch sports on TV, watch the Olympics, go for walks, enjoy good food, good drink, but these things are gifts to help us to love and appreciate and worship the giver of the gifts. And all things now were for Paul's knowing Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And so, all of the things that Kyle mentioned last week, let's press into those things. The, the ways in which that We've tried to think through and offer to you as ways to help us to know Christ and to be found in him. Sundays here together. Our gospel communities. If you're new here and you haven't uh, met one of our gospel community leaders or you haven't yet attended, summers are a little weird. Some of us are still just meeting in the park and hanging out. But get involved. Come and talk to us and say, yeah, I'd like to get involved with the GC a gospel community, to, to grow in connection and in friendship in our knowledge of the scriptures together. Our upcoming core classes, August 8th, Kyle announced, announced last week. Coffees together, personal Bible reading and prayer. If you don't know what that looks like, personal Bible reading and prayer, what it means to pray, what, what it is you, you should read in the Bible, we would love to meet with you and to read with you and to help you understand what you're reading. And you should come to the class for all of that. But as, as many have said, our love for God will never outpace our knowledge of God. So let's know him together. Paul is living his life, quorum Deo, before the face of God, which includes quick repentance, which includes ongoing trust in the cross of, of Christ to cleanse him and to forgive him, and then in growing holiness. And if all of that means that he should suffer and die, then so be it, he says. Jesus was killed by likely some of these same people, or at least their fathers. And so Paul here is saying he's not trying to get out of this with like lies or get off on a technicality. If there is actually something against him that he should be condemned for, then so be it. But, he says at the end of verse 12, if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He knows his legal rights. He knows he's likely not going to get a fair trial with these Jerusalem accusers so nearby, so he hits the nuclear option. He says, let's just take this thing straight to the top. After all, Jesus has told him that he would testify in Rome, so Paul's ready to just get this thing moving. He's been sitting around in prison for two years, and he has heard from Jesus, let's go. And I don't think, as some people, some commentators might say, that uh, he's being impatient here, or he's trying to just force the issue to get to Rome. He isn't, as one commentator says, in, like sinfully or impatiently, just waiting to ride on the waves of providence. He isn't faithless. He isn't disobedient. He is assertive in his decision-making. 
Our decision-making and choices are always intertwined with God's providential ordering of events, as we have seen many, many, many times throughout this book of Acts. And like we will think about in decision-making in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs commercials, stick around. But Paul will get to Rome. Jesus will make it happen. And as we'll think about, even through really, really difficult circumstances, even in a boat across the water, Jesus will be faithful to his promises. And so Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. But not yet. It's like, all right, we read that verse, we're like, great, get him on the boat. No, 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 no. Luke has much more uh, to tell us before then. After some days, Luke says in verse 13, when Herod Agrippa and Bernice arrive. And so now a third section, again, accused, vindicated, but not released yet, accused again. Now, Agrippa is the son of Herod Agrippa I, who in chapter 12, if you'll remember, he imprisoned Peter, he killed James. After proclaiming himself to be a god, he consequently died and was eaten by worms. That's this guy's dad. This Agrippa, this Herod Agrippa here, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the guy who was trying to manipulate the Magi, like in Matthew 1 and 2, to hunt down the child Jesus. It appears that Festus, the Roman governor, has brought in this guy, Herod Agrippa II, as kind of like a consultant. Festus is new on the job, and he wants to make sure from this puppet king of the Jews that he isn't missing something before he sends Paul off to Rome. But Luke's mention of Bernice likely would raise a few eyebrows, like Drusilla last week, in which Kyle said would have, the mere mention of her would have likely elicited something like TMZ-type responses. Bernice's reputation is no better, maybe worse. Both Jewish and Roman historians, people who have never come to Judea, know and write about Bernice. After several failed marriages, she is now here in a rumored to be, and it appears to be, Luke is telling us, in an incestuous relationship with her brother, Herod Agrippa. And Roman historians would later tell of her brief relationship with Titus Andronicus, the Roman general who would destroy Jerusalem. So Luke mentioning her is maybe like mentioning Marilyn Monroe or something, and all of the gossipy innuendo, innuendo of like Joe DiMaggio and Frank Sinatra and JFK that goes with just the mere mention of that name. And that is who is now coming to consult and determine Paul's fate. This unrighteous courtroom on the heels of a Jewish guy by being tried by Mr. Roman Pork Party. These are his accusers, his judges, and his jury. Hardly a court of righteous justice for a man living his life before the face of God. But here's the, here's the point, and here's the reason that I wanted to just kind of give you a lot of this background info on all of these people. That all of this narrative is grounded in historical reality. Luke is making well-researched claims about politics, about geography, about history, right alongside theological claims. Right alongside claims that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now, I've shared with several of you, or even several times from this pulpit, that about halfway through seminary for me, 
little over 10 years ago, I essentially had gotten to the point where I was very unsure, maybe even becoming more sure that God didn't exist. And at the heart of my doubt, the question had become, is the Bible trustworthy? Or is this book just a story of evolving mythology? I mean, we don't believe in Zeus or Hercules anymore. We are smarter than that. We are smarter to know that these Greeks were deluded uh, and they just made up this god, Zeus. So why is it that we believe that Jesus was actually a divine miracle worker who floated away to heaven? This was becoming a more and more difficult reality and question for me to wrestle with. I did tons of reading and Here's what began to pull me back from the brink. This book. Uh, this book, too, but this book sure helped. This was a lifeline to me. Uh, it's a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. It's written by a Cambridge professor named Richard Bauckham. And even though uh, this book has been criticized since, in the 15 years or so that it's been out, I think it still pretty definitively shows uh, that the Gospel accounts and the book of Acts are taken from eyewitness accounts and are the products of rigorous oral tradition. That is, rather than the gospel accounts being like the game of telephone, in which one person starts with something innocuous or just bland, and then you pass it along and pass it along, then it becomes hilarious and unintelligible by the end. This is the way that uh, the transmission of our Bible is often presented as that something interesting uh, happened with Jesus, but then by 30 to 60 years later, suddenly people are mistakenly thinking that Jesus claimed he was actually God. Rather, what we have here is not like the game of telephone, but we have like the disciplined uh, transmission of a martial art, disciplined transmission of names and numbers and speeches and places and actions that if you got wrong would then be corrected by the community would be corrected to preserve historical truthfulness. And another Cambridge professor, Peter Williams, I thought I had this book on my shelf, I think I gave it to one of you. Uh, the, who, this guy specializes in ancient languages and texts, wrote the book, uh, which is kind of like a more accessible version of this book, just simply called, Can We Trust the Gospels? I'd be happy to pass along a link or a hardback or whatever else, or even a couple of lectures by some of these guys. These were, these talks, based on history, were lifelines to me to say, yes, this is trustworthy. You can disagree with whether or not the Christian scriptures are trustworthy, but our faith is actually grounded in history. Actual humans, actual events that are based on eyewitness accounts. These eyewitnesses may have been confused, may have been mistaken, may have been deliberately lying, but this is what marks Christianity apart from Hinduism, from Islam, from Mormonism, from Greek mythology, and on and on and on. That eyewitnesses, contemporary eyewitnesses, are saying what they said they saw and were willing to die for it. Not future generations, but that one. And this is why in the Apostles' Creed, we mentioned Pontius Pilate. It's not because Pontius Pilate is like some incredibly important person in the history of our faith, the formation of our faith, but that Jesus' suffering under that particular man, under that particular moment in history, that is important. He lived, died, and suffered then and there, not mythologically, 
but actually. Because here's the thing, whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead is actually the center of everything. Agrippa and Bernice come in and Festus says that he doesn't know what to do with Paul. He can't find anything wrong with Paul. But then he gives one of the best explanations for a Christian that a non-Christian would ever, could ever give. This is what we would hope that non-Christians believe about us. In verse 19, he says, rather, he's saying, I can't find anything wrong with him. Rather, they, the Jews, had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's what a Christian is. Someone who asserts Jesus to be alive. This is the hinge point of Paul's life and the hinge point of every human's life. Is Jesus of Nazareth alive or dead? If his body decayed and now 2,000 years later he is just dust, then we are absolutely wasting our time here. These friendships, this community is great, but we could do this in some other social club. The rest of the world should absolutely ignore what we think about morality and about ethics. But if Jesus is alive, then the floodgates of his kingdom are now pouring open. If this certain Jesus, who was dead, but we assert is alive, then what we think about gender, about sexuality, about generosity, personal sacrifice, selflessness, and on and on and on, it isn't that weird. It's not that weird. Because what we do believe about Jesus, that stuff is weird. You want to know what's weird? We believe that this certain man who was dead but is now alive, we believe him to be in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, with holes still in his hands and his feet. And beyond that, we believe that he will return in the sky with a blast of a trumpet. That's crazy. He will come to bring judgment for both the living and the dead. There is a real sense in which we can and should want to make Christianity culturally relevant and accessible to an unbelieving world, but let's make Christianity weird again. It is, this stuff is, we, it is a weird, crazy thing that we say that we believe, and yet it is not irrational. It is grounded in history. We believe it by faith. We do not see, we believe by faith but we believe that he is alive and will return again. Let's embrace these crazy claims that we say we believe, not as irrational or historically stupid claims, but pretty crazy nonetheless. These claims and this king cannot be pushed out into the suburbs of your heart. We'll think more about this next week, but if Jesus, as we sang about in Christ is mine forevermore, if he is the king of kings. And let's think about that phrase, like capital K of lowercase k. If he is the king of all of the kings out there who have ever lived, of Pilate, of Felix, of Festus, of Herod, of Caesar, of Genghis Khan, of Henry VIII, of Kim Jong-un, of Donald Trump, of Joe Biden, then Jesus of Nazareth is king of them all. And he is the king of your small life as well, whether you like it or not. Because while Christianity is about your joy, is about your fulfillment, we sang we were made to walk with him. So walking not with him is going against your your created purpose. But at its core, Christianity is not a transaction. You believe and then you get all this awesome stuff. 
Christianity is about your submission to a good king and living in his good kingdom. If you aren't a Christian, this little part of what I'm doing here and try to do each week, it's not trying to manipulate you into like agreeing to some spiritual contract, but pleading with you to submit to the king of kings, pleading with you to submit to the king of all creation who has created you and who loves you, that you might live with him, that you might walk with him, that you might know him. Your king. And so Paul is living with a clean conscience before this king, knowing him, walking with him. But, but these smaller kings, these lowercase k kings, don't know what to do with him. And so at the end of the chapter, Festus tells Agrippa that it's going to be pretty embarrassing if this governor in the backwoods of Judea sends this prisoner to Rome to appear before Paul and there's nothing to accuse him with. We got to figure out something. We can't send him with nothing. So Agrippa is here to consult, to figure out what to charge him with, which now finally gets us to our last point of vindicated again. Festus has no idea what to do with Paul because not just that Paul has a clean conscience before God, but that this clean conscience before God has now transformed Paul into a model citizen. He's an exemplar of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Festus, Felix, they found nothing wrong, wrong with him. Now, Jesus does not need his people to be blameless, to be holy, for him to still be high and lifted up as the king of the universe. And unfortunately, this kind of thinking, we've seen this kind of thinking be the excuse for like, not reporting cases of abuse within the church, that if this story gets out, if the news breaks, then it'll make the church look bad. It will make Jesus look bad. So we just gotta, we gotta keep this quiet. But Jesus is not glorified by silencing victims, by protecting abusers. Jesus is, is not glorified by a people who present themselves as fully put together, a sinless, a holy, completely holy people who are in no need of the gospel of grace. We ought to be a people who are known for our weakness, who are known for our need. I'm a right mess. Come on in. We want our GC and living room conversations to be places of vulnerable sharing. That we are not people who are fully put together. That we are a people of need. But if our justification, the forgiveness of our sin, is actually just a means to an end to our sanctification, of our being made like Christ, of our ever-deepening communion with the triune God, then again, what Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting what is behind, we strain forward to know what lies ahead, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that of becoming like him, of being transformed into holiness. This week, a longtime career missionary, Susan Lafferty, she wrote an incredibly challenging blog post. At the end, she asked, do you want to seem holy or be holy? Do you want to seem like a good wife or be a good wife? Do you want to seem like a good minister or be a good minister? 
Don't be guilty of the sin of seeming, she writes. This is not our living our lives just for people out there that they might see and recognize that these people are holy or loving or something like that, but that Christ, through the power of his spirit within us, is actually making us into people of holiness. That we might know him in the power of his resurrection. The gospel of Jesus is one of seeming contradiction. It is a gospel of weakness, yes, but it is a gospel of transformative power, of power through weakness, that of pressing down in humility and need that he might make his people a standing, confident, clear-conscienced, holy people. Christ Church, it is very unlikely, it is very unlikely that any of us will appear before a court of our, a court of being accused and perhaps being threatened to be imprisoned because of our faith in Christ. Possible, not likely, but it is almost a certainty that you will appear before a court of your peers. The opinion of the world that says, wait, you believe what now? You're living your life how now? How backward, how disruptive, how insensitive to culture and to custom. Now, this is not a time to like hype us up as some kind of martyrs or victims. We live in the safest and freest society that any Christian has ever lived in in all of time. But Paul did not walk into this trial full of confident humility with a half-hearted knowledge of Christ. David, the boy before he became king, David did not approach the giant as the very first moment of courage and conviction in his life. He had, even in the few teenage years that he had had, been preparing and shaping himself in courage and in conviction for his entire life. Suffering is coming for you. Accusation is coming for you. Maybe at the hands of government. Maybe suffering is coming at the hands of an uncertain economy. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you lose your house. But undoubtedly, suffering is coming for all of us at the hands of nature. Death will come for you. Sickness will come for you. Physical weakness will come for you if it is not already. You cannot escape it. And so will you use today as an opportunity to know Christ? Will you use tomorrow morning as the gift from God that it is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Thousands and thousands of smaller moments of needed faith in our lives, of confident and growing holiness in just tiny ways throughout our days so that at the moment of the test, at the moment of the trial, at the moment of loss, the moment of intense suffering in your life, it will come at that moment. You might know and say with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever with great confidence hope and faith that he is with us. That kind of confident faith does not appear in a vacuum at the moment of the test. But it is a thousand moments leading up into then. 
as Paul has shown us, and he has modeled for us by the power of the Spirit, through the love of Christ, and the wooing, and the beckoning, and the keeping of the Father. May it be so for us, and we pray that it would. Our God, we do pray. We acknowledge our weakness. We are right messes. We need you to come in, to clean up, to transform. But God, we do recognize, oh Spirit, that you are a God of power, that you are a God of transformation. We pray that you would not leave us content or comfortable, complacent in a place of uh, ongoing sin. Help us to confront our flesh in the ways in which we see it. Help us to grow in selflessness. Help us to grow in sacrificial uh, time-giving for the people in our church, for those in our GC, of sacrificial time and and energy-giving for the unbelieving friends that we have in our neighborhood, and the shine partnership that you are growing and giving us. God, help us to love because of our love that we have experienced in the God-man, Christ Jesus, who lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and make things new, make things right, that you would judge sin, that you would finally vanquish all sin from our own hearts and minds, that we might know you fully now fully free from sin, that we pray that you would bring justice in this world that is a world of injustice. We pray that you would right wrongs. We pray that you would comfort the brokenhearted, that you would bind up those who are mourning, that you would give to the needy, that you would use us as your people to accomplish these purposes because you are a God of love. King Jesus, help us to live more confidently with clean consciences, with strong courage and conviction now this week in your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.